Hi. Today's um, Bible reading is in the book of John, chapter 8, verses 30 to 59. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are the descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father, so then you do what you have heard from your father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing what your father does. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. The Jews responded to him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Please join me in prayer before we begin. Blessed Lord, 
whose service is perfect freedom, rich in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You have caused the scriptures to be written for our benefit and our learning. Help us to hear your word with open ears, receive your word with humble hearts, and apply your word with discerning minds, that we might receive the gift of life that you have promised us, and that our joy might be complete in you. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what's in a name? We all know that names are important. You'll be pleased to know that I have one. Uh, my name is Sherwin. I have the joy of being a part of the 6 p.m. congregation uh, here at Toongabbey. And as I stand here looking at all of you, I can't help but think that this is an April Fool's joke that has been taken entirely too far. <laughs> but let's talk about names. Imagine a world in which people didn't have names. A world without names would be a world without meaning, without significance, and without identity. Communication would be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, and no one would feel seen, heard, known, or loved. Our names, in a very real sense, give us our identity. They're ultimately personal. They are, in a very real sense, who we are. Names are significant. They speak. They tell a story. In the ancient cultures in which the Bible was written, names had a different kind of significance. To give someone a name in the ancient cultures of the Middle East was to give someone their character, the essence of who they were, their destiny, in a sense, a destiny that the individual was meant to live out. Thankfully, some of the staff team here at Tungabi Anglican have good biblical names, so I can use them as examples. <laughs> Mike, or Michael, to give him his full name. In Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, Mikael means who is like God. Mike's name is a question. People hearing it in the ancient world would hear the question about God's uniqueness. Isaac. In Hebrew, Yitzhak means he will laugh. And if you've heard Isaac laugh, you will think that entirely checks out. Yitzhak speaks of joy. It is the essential characteristic, the defining trait of who he is. Rachel. In Hebrew, Raquel means female sheep or little lamb, a symbol of purity and innocence. This is the meaning that ancient people would have heard when they heard the name Rachel. We can speak to Jesus' name too. Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew, means God will save. That's what the people of Jesus' day would have heard when they heard his name. They would have heard, summarized in a name, the story of their God, a God who rescued his people time and time again. In this passage, Jesus claims a name, a personal name, a special name, a name with ultimate meaning, ultimate significance, 
that points to his ultimate identity. This name tells a story and speaks to who he is. That name is I Am. This is the name by which the one true living God introduces himself all the way through the Christian Bible, the record of God's interaction with his ancient people. Jesus claims to be this God. The name I Am ultimately shows that God is knowable and personal, not abstract, not a theory, not disinterested or indifferent, but intimately involved, up close and personal. We'll unpack more of what this means as we go along, and we'll look at what I Am says about God, about Jesus, and about us. See, the name I Am doesn't just speak to Jesus' identity, it also speaks to our identity. It's only when we see its meaning and significance that we understand our meaning and significance. It's only when we see his identity and step into the story of I am that our identity and our story make sense. We need Jesus to be who he claims to be. We need him to be I am. This talk opens a series on Jesus revealing God in the Gospel of John, one of the four ancient biographies of Jesus' life contained in the Christian New Testament. Jesus claims several different identities in John, but in this passage, Jesus says something so foundational about his identity that we're starting here. We need Jesus to be who he claims to be. We need him to be I am. I want to unpack this idea under three headings. The offense of I am, the revelation of I am, and the necessity of I am. Firstly, the offense of I am. In John chapter 8, we see Jesus in Jerusalem, the ancient capital of his people, in the temple complex teaching. We can see a picture of what the temple would have looked like on the screen. For first century Jews, the temple was the center of life and worship. It was where they went to be taught and to worship God. Just before this passage, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will have the light of life. Jesus claims to be light and to give life. The one who illuminates all of reality and allows people to truly see. Now this understandably attracts the attention of the religious leaders who push back on Jesus' claims. But Jesus, in classic Jesus fashion, uses this as a teaching opportunity. He talks about truth and falsehood, which brings us to the beginning of our passage today and verse 31. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This again provokes a response. Jesus speaks truth and the crowd responds with slander and insults. This conversation about truth leads to a conversation about ultimate reality, capital T, truth, and about Jesus' identity. Who are you to say all of these things? 
the crowd asks mockingly. And at this point, Jesus drops a bombshell so loud that it's still ringing in our ears today. From verse 51, Jesus says, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. And at this point, the tension explodes into trouble as the crowd pick up stones to throw at Jesus, to kill him. What is going on here and why? First, I need to state the obvious. Jesus' response to their question is strange. (laughs) Apart from making no grammatical sense whatsoever, (laughs) I am is an odd thing to say even by Jesus' standards. I am what? What does this even mean? Why is the crowd so offended that they're ready to kill? Friends, I am is offensive. It has always been offensive. It was offensive to them, and it is offensive to us. Why is this the case? Well, let's start with them. I am is the name of the one true living God, the name by which God introduces himself to his Old Testament people. Those who had pledged allegiance to this God were well acquainted with this name. Out of deep respect, it was never pronounced, it was never spoken aloud, it was forbidden to use it. If they had to, they'd always use a substitute, like the Lord or the name. More than this, Judaism was unique in the ancient world. In a world of many gods and goddesses, the Jews claimed that there was only one true living God. They were unique. Monotheists, one God, in a world of polytheists, many gods. Judaism was also different in another way. The ancient Jews did not make images of their God, and yet this was the norm in the ancient world. The Jews, acting on God's command, believed that the glory, the infinite glory of the invisible God could not be contained in any one image. The Jewish temple was the only temple in the ancient world that did not have images of their God in it. They're taking this from the famous Ten Commandments, the the laws that God gave to govern the lives of his people. The first commandment, God commands his people, do not worship any God besides me, and two, do not make any image or representation of me. Into this context, Here's Jesus speaking the name of God, and not just speaking it, applying it to himself and claiming to be the representation of God, the eternal, glorious God in time and space, the invisible made invisible, the visible, the invisible, sorry, made visible. Jesus claimed to be I am. 
No wonder Jesus' hearers, his very own people, picked up stones to throw at him. Blasphemy was a capital offence. To claim to be God was a serious charge. The penalty was death, according to the Old Testament law, which governed the Old Testament people of God. The ultimate punishment for the ultimate offence. I am is offensive. I am has always been offensive. It was offensive then, it's offensive now. But it's offensive now for a different reason. I am is offensive to us because in our heart of hearts, we don't want there to be a God. Consider the implications. If, as the Bible says, there is a God who made us, this means he has a unique claim over us. He sets the rules for life, not us. The Bible says that there is a God, a personal God, who speaks, who sets the rules of the game, who has expectations of us, and who holds us all ultimately accountable for our actions. We don't want this to be true. In our heart of hearts, you and I don't want there to be a God because none of us ultimately wants to have to explain ourselves or face the consequences of and for our actions. Our offense at God and the way it overflows into our lives how we live is what the Bible calls sin. The human heart oriented against God's plans, God's purposes, and God's design. We'll unpack what this means and its implications later, but right now, the big idea is this. I am has always been offensive. Jesus saying that he is God has always been offensive. We do not want it to be true. And yet, we need it to be true. We need Jesus to be who he claims to be. We need Jesus to be I am. Second point, the revelation of God. Jesus says that he's God, but he also shows it. To say that your God is one thing, but to demonstrate it visibly, publicly and repeatedly is another thing entirely. All throughout John's gospel and throughout the four gospels, the ancient biographies of Jesus that we have contained for us in the Christian New Testament, Jesus shows that he is God. He reveals what God, this I am, is like. The God he reveals is the God we need. The events of the Easter weekend are the ultimate demonstration of this. Who God is and what he's like. That's what we mark in a special way this week. But at this point, we need to stop and ask an important question. What is God like? What can we reasonably expect God to be like? All throughout the Bible, God speaks He's personal, he's knowable, he's intimate, he's up close and personal. As he speaks, he reveals what he is like. At the dawn of time, in the beginning, he speaks to bring all things into being, showing us what he's like, revealing his ultimate authority, ultimate power, and ultimate creativity. He speaks to his creation, blessing it, revealing his rich care and his intimate concern. 
he speaks with humanity to humanity, detailing how to live the good life, revealing that he desires our good and our flourishing. And he speaks judgment as well as hope when humanity reject his good plans and purposes, revealing both his justice as well as his love. God speaks. And as he speaks, he shows what he is like. As we read through the unfolding drama of the Bible, we learn more about God. Throughout the narrative, time and time again, God speaks what he is like and shows what he is like. He reveals more of himself as the story progresses along. Now, this is important to remember as we get to one of the high points of God speaking and God showing. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, about 1,500 years before Jesus, we see God revealing himself to Moses, a down-on-his-luck prince turned shepherd, who God raises up to rescue his people out of slavery as depicted in Cecil B. DeMille's 1956 all-time classic film, The Ten Commandments, if you're over a certain age. (laughs) Or if you grew up in the 90s, have young kids, or have excellent taste in musicals, (laughs) think the 1998 DreamWorks animated classic, The Prince of Egypt. Both are essential viewing. God speaks to Moses. And in his speaking, he shows what he is like. We read in Exodus 3, God says to Moses, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of your fathers. God establishes continuity. This is the same God speaking. This is the same God who spoke at creation. God goes on to say, I am who I am. This is my name forever, how I am to be remembered. In our translations, this name, I am who I am, is translated the Lord, all in capitals. This is the name by which God is known throughout the rest of the Bible. And the name in short form, which Jesus claims for himself, I am. I am means that God simply is. There are three dimensions at play here. God was, God is, God will be. Past, present, future. Unchanging. I am who I am. God speaks to spell out and reveal what his name means. His name points to who he is. Later on in Exodus, Moses, now the leader of God's Old Testament people, asks to see God face to face. Moses wants to see God's glory in all its fullness, his radiant, majestic, totally out of this world splendor. Think IMAX level, ultra high definition cinema, with surround sound, but on a cosmic scale. 
God says to Moses, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, before you. But you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord came down in a cloud and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshipped. This is the meaning of God's name according to God. The rest of the Bible bases its understanding of the person of God and the character of God on these verses. Rich in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is who God says he is and repeatedly shows himself to be in his interactions with his people. His glory, that which makes him God, is his goodness. The thing that is most praiseworthy, most ultimate, and most awesome about God is that he is altogether and purely good. This is a God who continually introduces and reintroduces himself to a people who want nothing to do with him. A God who is faithful and steadfast, even when his people are faithless and fickle. A God who continually offers his people truth and freedom and life. When time and again they choose falsehood, slavery, death. This is who Jesus claims to be by using the name I am. The God who climactically reveals himself to Moses. The invisible God made visible. The God of heaven on earth. Jesus claims to be the revelation of God in all his glory, in all his goodness. This is who Jesus says he is. And Jesus shows it in his every interaction, in his every teaching, in every story he tells, in every miracle he performs, Jesus is claiming to reveal God and to show what God is like. Rich in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We need Jesus to be who he claims to be. We need him 
to be. I am. All of this raises perhaps the most important question of this talk. Why? Why go to all this trouble? Why go to these lengths? Why do any of this at all? Which leads us to our third and final point. The necessity of I am. I wonder if you noticed the tension in God's description of himself in the Old Testament. Let me read it out to you again. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But, but, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. In the unfolding drama of the Old Testament, I am is in a sense God saying, watch this space. Watch and see how I will reveal how great and glorious and good and worth following I am. Watch and see how I resolve this tension. When God revealed himself to Moses, he had to veil himself, to cloak himself, to hide himself. He says, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. God is in a different category to us. He's a different order of being entirely. His glory, as I've said, that which makes him worthy of all glory and honor and praise, is that he is truly and utterly good. This is why as soon as God shows up, all Moses could do is fall flat on his face and worship because God is the font of all that is good, all that is beautiful, and all that is true. God must veil himself. God must hide himself, cloak himself, because if he was unveiled and revealed in all of his perfection, his perfection would utterly consume and destroy all imperfection. So here is the great tension at the heart of all of the Bible from start to finish. How can God put an end to rebellion, wrongdoing, and sin without putting an end to all of us? How can God put an end to wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin without putting an end to all of us. Here is the ultimate demonstration of I am. God revealing how great, how glorious, how good, and how worth following he is. He writes himself into the drama of human history and enters center stage in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He conceals his glory. He veils himself in flesh and blood and bone. 
He reaches all the way down to where we are in love. Yet without giving up a drop of his divinity. It's like in the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. He lives among us as one of us, telling us about the gravity of the situation we find ourselves in, one that we cannot ourselves escape. And he offers in himself the solution, the only solution. Jesus' name means God will save. Jesus saves because he is God. We need Jesus to be who he claims to be. We need him to be I am. Returning to our passage, Jesus saves us from slavery. In verses 34 to 36 of our passage, we read, Jesus says, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. If the Son sets you free, you will really be free. Slavery is an ugly word. It's an ugly word that paints a confronting picture of our condition and our natural state. In our natural state, we love the wrong things too much, the right things too little, and God not at all. Whatever or whoever we love most, we serve. This is what Jesus says. Whatever or whoever we love most, we serve. And we become what we love. We were made to love and serve God, whose service is perfect freedom. If we serve anything or anyone else apart from God, Jesus is saying we become enslaved to whatever or whoever we ultimately serve. And it will take, and it will take, and it will take. Until we are trapped, until we are diminished, and we are ultimately dehumanized. Jesus saves us from this slavery. But Jesus doesn't save us from, well, he does. Jesus doesn't only save us from, he also saves us for. Jesus saves us from slavery, and Jesus saves us for freedom and life. In verse 36, he offers to set us free, and in verse 51, he assures us that whoever keeps his word will never see death. He saves us from slavery and saves us for freedom and life. How he ultimately does this, we see through the last week of Jesus' life, which we commemorate in a special way this week. 
So come back for the Easter talks if you want to hear uh, the ultimate climax of this. But for now, Jesus saves us for freedom and life by reordering our disordered loves, by reorienting our disordered lives so that we can love all that is good and beautiful and true and God most of all. We go from loving the wrong things too much, the right things too little, and God not at all, to loving God most of all, and freed to love all that is good, all that is beautiful, and all that is true. He does this so we might serve God, the one who sets us free, flourishing in renewed humanity and living the good life that God always intended for us, abundant and overflowing life, life to the full. As one writer puts it, to see God's law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. This is the life that Jesus offers, life to the full. If we would but put our trust in him, that he is who he says he is, and that he came to do what he came to do. Will we hand him the pen of our lives and trust that he, rich in mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, can and will write us a better script than anything we can write ourselves. We need Jesus to be who he claims to be. We need him to be I am. The life and the freedom that Jesus offers is beautifully summed up in a song written in the 18th century by John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. Newton notes that the greatest struggle that humanity faces is that we struggle to navigate the tension of what we have to do and what we want to do. So what we have to do, our duty is over here. And what we want to do, our pleasure is over here. In perhaps one of the most beautiful reflections on what it means to trust in and follow Jesus, Newton writes, and these are words that have profoundly gripped and shaped my heart and life, and I pray that they would do the same for you. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposites before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our greatest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposites before, since we have seen his beauty are joined to part no more, it is our greatest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. In Jesus and Jesus alone, what we have to do and what we want to do become one and the same because his service is perfect freedom. Friends, Jesus is worth following with our rule and loving with our rule because he first loved us beyond measure and he first served us with his all. We'll unpack more of who Jesus is 
what he came to do and what he offers in the weeks to come. But I think it only right and proper to finish up by offering Jesus the last word. In Jesus' own words, this is what he came to do. Hear the words of Jesus from John chapter 3, perhaps the most famous words ever written. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We need Jesus to be who he claims to be. We need Jesus to be I am. Rich in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Amen.